Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damian Garde, recording from STAT's worldwide headquarters here in Boston. And I'm Rebecca Robbins, coming to you from my hometown of Santa Barbara, California. Adam Feuerstein is out today because he is under the weather. Feel better, Adam. It's Thursday, January 24th, and here's what's on the docket this week. Katrine Bosley just made a surprise announcement that she's going to resign from her post as the CEO of CRISPR company Editas Medicine. Our stat colleague Matt Herper will join us to talk about the future of Editas and the future of other companies trying to develop treatments using CRISPR. Matt will stick around to tell us about another story he wrote, about the legacy of the closely watched biotech company Celgene. The Celgene era, you'll recall, came to an end earlier this month with the news that Bristol-Myers Squibb plans to buy the drug maker for $74 billion. A bunch of top-tier investors just funded a startup that's pitching genetic sequencing and targeted therapies for dogs with cancer. We'll talk about this extremely Silicon Valley story and some of the tough questions it raises. And last but not least, we'll bring you another lightning round. That'll mean quick takes on the drug industry's lobbying budget, a flood of Theranos films, and a drug developer's unending 37-year drought. But first, a word from our sponsor. Bringing a new drug to market is getting tougher and tougher. At Cineos Health, we're changing the game. The result of a merger between INC Research and Inventive Health, Cineos Health has one goal in mind, shortening the distance from lab to life. Visit CineosHealth.com forward slash podcast. That's S-Y-N-E-O-S health.com forward slash podcast. First up, we're going to talk about some biotech news that came as a surprise on Monday. Katrine Bosley, the CEO of CRISPR drug developer Editas Medicine, announced that she's resigning. Right. So the news is that she'll be leaving the company on March 1st, and she'll be replaced on an interim basis by a board member named Cynthia Collins, who is the former CEO of Craig Venter's Human Longevity, Inc. Joining us to talk about what went down at Editas is our colleague Matt Herper. He's Stat's senior writer covering medicine. Matt, welcome back to the podcast. Great to be here. So what do we know about why Bosley is stepping down? Very little. The company said that it was a personal decision. Katrine wrote a very nice series of tweets saying that she loved everyone at Editas, essentially, but that she had decided to make her own transition. There had been people who'd said that she, maybe she wasn't connecting with investors, big investors, uh, as well as the board wanted. But she certainly wasn't on anybody's short list for a CEO who was going to be out in the near future. And I think that was one of the big reasons the stock reacted. Wall Street doesn't like surprises. So Matt, as you said, this was not expected. In retrospect, did Bosley look like a CEO on her way out? I don't think so, except, you know, looking back at the record, you do notice some things that are a bit surprising. Back in March, Jim Mullen, who is the former CEO of Biogen and more recently a company called Patheon, which he led and then sold, became the chairman at Editas. And Cynthia Collins, who was at Human Longevity, was added to the board in December. The curious thing about that press release is that it doesn't have a quote from Katrine. And we also noticed that there were a bunch of executive departures over the past year. Also, other people staying through till March 1. So you do have to wonder if there's something going on here in terms of a, a repositioning of the company. So what does this change in leadership over at Editas mean for the other companies trying to develop drugs using CRISPR genome editing? 
It's very hard to say what a leadership change like this means for other companies or even for Editas right now until we know more. The thing you have to remember about these CRISPR companies, we all get really excited about CRISPR, but this is gene therapy and then it's kind of harder gene therapy because you've added this other variable, which is gene editing, which we don't know how to do. We're only getting the first of these treatments in the clinic. Obviously a butterfly flaps its wings and it can have all sorts of effects downstream, but I wouldn't predict what the effects of Katrine leaving now are on the whole CRISPR enterprise based on what we know. And that was something I found kind of fascinating when the news came out, which is that the stock prices of CRISPR Therapeutics and Intellia Therapeutics, which are two other companies working with similar technologies, both dropped on the news of Bosley's impending resignation. And that's curious because despite, you know, working on similar technologies, as I mentioned, they're pursuing different disease targets on different timelines and ostensibly, as you just mentioned, have almost nothing to do with each other. So it just seemed odd that the resignation of one CEO at one company would apparently be perceived by investors as a cross-cutting negative for, you know, an entire emerging field of biotech. Well, I mean, volatility is high, which is another way of saying people are kind of skittish. And this may mean that this is hard, which we knew. But every time you're reminded this is hard, maybe some people think, well, you know, maybe I don't want to be in something so hard. I'll go buy something lower risk. It's worth noting, too, that something similar has happened in this space without everyone freaking out. In late 2017, CRISPR Therapeutics changed CEOs and no one panicked. I think that Katrine had really become a face for the sector in a way that the other chief executives haven't. She was very telegenic. She was very willing to talk about kind of the big ethical issues of CRISPR. Um, so I do think losing her may mean something for the sector, although, again, I have a tough time drawing a line from that to the future financial performance of any of these companies, which is what the stock price should, in theory, be based on. One thing I'm curious about is, you know, one way of framing this, perhaps, again, this is all in the absence of information from Bosley directly, but is that, you know, the kind of talent you need for the first few years of a private biotech company with emerging technology might not be the talent you need when it's time to go into the clinic or for that matter to go into commercialization. And I feel like we've seen examples of that in biotech history. And we've also seen examples of, of the other way where there's some sort of like visionary leader who carries things from the beginning until the product is actually in the pharmacy. I'm curious, what do you, what do you all think? Is that possibly an explanation here? Or is that maybe kind of a spurious thing to grasp onto? Well, it's true. There are very few visionary leaders who can take you all the way through, right? There's Lenschleifer at Regeneron. Josh Boger at Vertex to some extent, but he didn't really get the company all the way there, even though he was there for years and years and years. Uh, but it's it's very tough to be the entrepreneur and carry it all the way through. So there definitely is that kind of shift. And Damien, you pointed to Genentech as sort of a counterexample there. Yeah, I think when people discuss the history of Genentech, which is like the most vaunted company in biotech history, they'll often point to Art Levinson as the prototypical biotech CEO. But of course, he didn't take over the company until the 1990s. And I think a lot of times when people talk about his legacy, it's as balancing the all in on the science spirit of the early days with the talent to actually turn that science into products, which is, um, I think, a little bit of an underrated pivot that biotech companies have to go through if they're fortunate enough to survive to that point. And people forget how hard the journey for Genentech on products was. I mean, we don't talk about TPA that much, right? And that was kind of the big early Genentech battle. This isn't easy. And uh, there often need to be 
new leaders brought in in order to make something work. I really wish everybody in all these companies and Katrina all the best. You know, I hope that whatever reasons are behind this are good, but it isn't unusual to have leadership change in biotech. It's kind of standard and comes with the territory. Next up, let's talk about what remains the biggest biotech story of 2019. Bristol-Myers Squibb's move to buy Celgene for $74 billion. I am still kind of incredulous that that happened this month. Yeah, that feels like so long ago. Yeah, think how I feel, guys. (laughs) (laughs) It's worth taking stock of what Celgene has meant to biotech before it gets swallowed up by Bristol. So in the past couple weeks, Matt Herper reported out and wrote what I think is the really definitive history of Celgene and of the legacy it leaves behind. So Matt, for starters, your story begins, as perhaps all great stories do, with a stock tip from a New York City cab driver. Can you recap that anecdote for us? Yeah, so I had this really great conversation at J.P. Morgan with Nina Shelson, who's a venture capitalist at uh, Canaan. I was asking people what they thought losing Celgene meant, and she told me the story, which was that when she was kind of a junior analyst, In 1999, she got into a cab and was told by the cab driver the Celgene story, which is that they were taking this drug, thalidomide, which is one of the most infamous drugs in history because it was initially used in pregnant women and caused birth defects, and developing it as a cancer drug. And 1999 was kind of the year Celgene took off. So it seemed like a good place to start, and Nina also gave me the word that I wound up building the story around, which was chutzpah. I'd been kind of trying to figure out how I would sum up Celgene. And she said that, and I guess as a New Yorker, that seemed like the perfect summation of this company's history. And so what is it that makes chutzpah such a fitting term? It takes a lot of guts to take thalidomide and decide that this is not only going to be a drug, but you're, you're going to explore the chemistry of this molecule and find a whole bunch of other drugs. But there's also the matter of pricing, which is Celgene... They initially launched thalidomide. It was approved to treat leprosy. They really thought it was going to be used to treat wasting from HIV. And this was around the moment that that HIV treatment started to change and the disease started to become treatable. And that market never really materialized. And then they got lucky. There was some research in this from outside cell gene before, but a cancer patient named Ira Wolmer and his wife Beth pushed to use the drug on Ira and it turned out to be effective, not for him, but for other patients that his doctor, Bart Barlogi, treated. And that was what launched thalidomide, or thalamid, as a cancer drug. And during that time, uh, as that was happening, Celgene had initially priced the drug at about 6 bucks, And so they kept gradually raising the price. And this continued not only with thalamid, but when they launched an improved thalamid, Revlimid, uh, which is their current big seller, the price increases kept uh, happening. And now Revlimid's about, it's more than $600 a pill. So they were really willing to to take price increases like a lot of the industry. And I think we're emblematic of that too. 
So there's a really interesting sort of like meta-biotech point that I, I thought was underlined in your article. Celgene was among the leading lights in the industry, but unlike, for example, Biogen or Genentech, its beginnings weren't with, you know, Nobel Prize winning, world-changing discoveries from within the company, but rather it grew out of a World War One era chemical manufacturer. Can you tell us a bit about Celgene's history and how it kind of formed the DNA of the company as it evolved? Well, it was much more a company of the traditional New Jersey-based chemistry and pharma sector, I think, than the kind of biotech cultures that you see in Boston or in San Francisco. And when you met those guys, that that was often kind of the impression you would get. It's not fair to say it wasn't a science-based company. I mean, I remember sitting with Saul Barrow years ago and him drawing out the molecules for all of the thalidomide analogs they were developing. But it was a different mindset from a Genentech. And there was a little bit more of specialty pharma, like a Forest Labs, or as I mentioned in the story, companies like Syntex, which gave us naproxen. There have been one product companies in pharma that had crazy sales growth for a long time because we know drugs can generate a lot of revenue. So on the whole, do you think Celgene's legacy will be positive or negative? Will we remember them as a noble pillar of the biotech industry? Or will we remember them as the company that turned a $6 pill into a $700 one? I don't think we'll remember them as noble. I don't know that companies always have to be noble. You know, entrepreneurs aren't necessarily noble, right? There is an element of, of greed is good here. But I think that we the company does have that mixed legacy. And one point that I made that I think is really important is that I think this is something that reflects on the entire industry. I think a lot of people in the industry, when I talk to them, and even some mail I've gotten on the story since it ran, have a lot of trouble grasping how it is that people are so mad at them. Developing thalidomide and developing Revlimid was a really important medical advance. But you can also understand how those price increases, which at the beginning were probably about as valid as a price increase could be. They had a cancer drug that was priced way below equivalent cancer drugs. But those price increases do wear thin on people. A lot of the discussion about the pharmaceutical industry has always been about how do you weigh the value of the medicine versus the cost. And Celgene sure is a story that that is emblematic of having to try to negotiate those problems. Matt, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. next segment, we're going to talk about a story that could be reasonably mistaken for a game of Silicon Valley Mad Libs. Right. So as I understand it, the high level overview is a startup based in Palo Alto is pitching cutting edge technology for a rich people thing, and it's funded by big name venture capitalists. You know, that's basically all you need to know. Well, but so give us the details anyway, since we're all here. Okay. So the startup is called The One Health Company, and its patients are pet dogs who've been diagnosed with cancer. The company is pitching a service in which it will genetically profile a dog's tumor and then generate a report recommending treatments. It's kind of similar to what Foundation Medicine does with human cancer patients. Now, the standard of care for dogs with cancer is surgery, radiation, chemotherapy, but this startup wants to recommend targeted therapies that are normally prescribed to human cancer patients. So what kind of drugs are we talking about here? Is this like matching dogs with like Keytruda and Opdivo? 
The CEO of this company wouldn't name specific drugs that, that the company's reports might recommend, but she did say it would include both generic and brand name targeted therapies. So I would guess probably not drugs that have quite as high of a price tag as Keytruda or Opdivo, um, but we're still talking pretty cutting edge therapies relative to standard of care. They did provide a sample report that listed, say, an mTOR inhibitor, which is a therapeutic class that targets what's known as the mTOR pathway. So you mentioned price, and and that was my prevailing curiosity. How much does all of this cost? So for the genetic sequencing and the report, that's a few thousand dollars, depending on the veterinary clinic. And this is all out of pocket because that's how it works in veterinary medicine. And then in addition to the cost of the genetic testing, the company's kind of gotten involved in the payment models in which the dog owners actually procure the medication. So they're experimenting with, say, a price of $500 a month for a recommended therapy or a flat fee of $1,500 for the life of the dog. And the way that they're able to do this is interesting and unusual. Uh, The CEO said the startup has struck deals with pharma companies that might provide the drugs, um, sort of an arrangement similar to compassionate use. So what kind of evidence does the company have to support the idea that an FDA-approved targeted kinase inhibitor will work for my dog? So there is not a huge amount of evidence to support this. You know, we don't know in many cases if these targeted therapies for humans work in dogs or how they compare to standard treatment. You know, it would be pretty terrible if, if you paid all this money for a fancy genetic profiling and a targeted therapy when your dog might have done better on regular old chemo. And some of the same questions that are raised about these cutting-edge therapies in humans also apply in dogs. You know, we, we don't know how useful this sequencing is in achieving the real goal here, which is to increase the quality and the quantity of a dog's life. Getting to sort of the obvious things here that we were mentioning before and what makes this such a quintessential Silicon Valley story is it touches on a major theme in a lot of entrepreneurial developments in the United States, which is where something that is quite expensive and available to rich people gets applied to some use when there are so many people who go without what might be necessary. And it feels like tumor genomic sequencing is almost like a base case for that. So I guess what are the ethical issues that are kind of brought up by this business model and by its focus on canines? So one concern you hear a lot about sort of aggressive treatment for dogs is the question of whether an owner might be prolonging the animal's suffering because they're not ready to let go. There's also, of course, the issue of, you know, how many dogs need adopting. There's so many dogs in shelters who need homes. And then as as you had gestured to, Damien, there's kind of the awkward comparison that gets raised here, which is, you know, while the dogs of Silicon Valley are getting their tumors profiled, there are lots of human patients who don't get cutting-edge treatment like this. So, yeah, one thing that stood out to me, Rebecca, in your story is Foundation Medicine, a company that does this for, for people, um, gave you some of their estimates about the usage rates of this technology among human beings. And only about 12% of human beings with advanced cancer receive next-generation sequencing, whereas about 62% of advanced cancer patients get no genomic testing at all. Yeah, I think those you know statistics really do point at how access to some of this cutting-edge treatment for humans, you know, isn't entirely there yet. But to be fair, you know, it's not an either-or necessarily. You know, whether or not rich people personally spend their money on questionable things does not impact whether people who are poor or otherwise disadvantaged can access the best cancer care. You know, I think it's possible for us as a society to do both things at once, 
to, on one hand, try to improve cancer care for dogs, and on the other hand, to make sure that more human cancer patients who could benefit from genetic profiling actually get it. And finally this week, the lightning round. So first up, an update for you on a story we talked about last week. Uh, That's about a biotech called Immunomedics and its 37-year quest to get a drug approved by the FDA. As you recall, when we talked about it last week, the company was finally on the cusp of getting its first approval for a breast cancer drug that had good safety and efficacy data. But then came an unexpected decision from the FDA, rejected. Damien, what happened? Basically, the age-old reason that drugs that look promising don't end up making it across the finish line, which is unresolved manufacturing issues. So the FDA had in the past raised issues with immunomedics as to how it was manufacturing this drug, which is a relatively complicated thing that fuses an antibody with an old-fashioned small molecule drug. And so there were some lingering worries as to whether that could crop up and, and thwart immunomedics right at the finish line, and those lingering worries ended up being correct. Keep in mind, the FDA raised no concerns about the safety or efficacy of the drug. Um, So that looks like if they can resolve this manufacturing problem, uh, they will break that drought. But I think this is a cautionary tale of how serious manufacturing problems can be and how much time they can take to resolve. So moving on to Washington, D.C., Pharma, PHRMA, the large lobbying group that we all know and love, spent more than $27.5 million on lobbying in 2018, which is the most that the group has ever spent in a single year. So that's a lot of money. But whenever I see these numbers, I always think that's like half of a Series A round now. That's true. I mean, I guess it's notable in the context of it's the most they've ever spent. And of course, 2018 was a fascinating year when it comes to the drug industry's relationship with the White House and with Congress. But yeah, you're right. I mean, $27.5 million is in drug development terms or venture capital terms a rounding error in so many ways. And so I think it's very possible that we could find ourselves saying this every quarter or every year that pharma has broken its lobbying spend record just because there are so many threats uh, facing the drug industry right now in Washington. There are the efforts to take on high prescription drug prices coming both from the White House and from Congress. And as long as Donald Trump's in office, uh, I think the lobbying group is not letting its guard down. So for those of you who've been forced to choose between which documentary on the horribly ill-fated fire Festival you want to watch, you'll soon face a similar quandary with Theranos, which is basically the fire Festival of modern biotech history. So to recap the documentaries that are coming your way, this week ABC News put out a documentary called The Dropout about the Theranos saga. The headline news from that documentary was footage of a deposition um, by the SEC in which ex-CEO Elizabeth Holmes said, quote, I don't know, end quote, more than 600 times in response to questions. This is the testimony of Elizabeth Holmes going on the record in San Francisco, California, at 9 o'clock a.m. on July 11th, 2017. Ms. Holmes, please raise your right hand. Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? I do. And then you've got The Inventor, which is an HBO documentary on the very same subject, directed by Alex Gibney, who famously has made documentaries on Scientology and Enron. We thought it'd be interesting to ask you, in the year 2025, what's the thing you're most certain about? More people will have access to their own health information. What do you dream for something in 2025? That less people have to say goodbye too soon to people they love. That's great. 
Um, can you tell us a secret? I don't have many secrets. I'm... That debuted just this week at the Sundance Film Festival and will make its way to HBO Airwaves later this year. You know, I think we're getting to the point between Fire Festival and Theranos that I'm never going to be satisfied with just one documentary anymore. I'm always going to demand a companion documentary. (laughs) That's fair. And actually, the Theranos saga comes with the added bookend, I suppose, that we will get a feature film in the form of Bad Blood directed by Adam McKay sometime in the coming years. And that is, at least last I checked, set to star Jennifer Lawrence as Elizabeth Holmes, the former CEO of Theranos. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Heisen Tempanado, who produced this week's episode. Matthew Orr is our senior producer, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And a reminder that we would love to hear from you. Tell us what you liked or didn't like about this week's episode. Let us know which biotech debacle should be the subject of dueling documentaries in the future. You can do all of that by sending us an email to readoutloud at statnews.com. We appreciate all your feedback, so thank you. See you next week. 